stand together one more time. Scripture from Isaiah up on the board. Would you read this with us before we're seated together? I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. You may be seated. Absolute delight to be with you this morning. Anybody need counseling from being inside for 48 straight hours? All right. Our moms especially, if that was you. Yes. All right. We'll get you some. Uh, delighted to be able to worship the Father with you, praying that the opening of Scripture with you today would be fruitful and helpful, that God would make what we come across in the book of Galatians clear to you this morning. Uh, we're talking trades today, so you can start by thinking of what was the most memorable and awesome trade of your life. Was it like Twinkies for ring dings, vanilla for chocolate? Was it your last boyfriend before you found the one who would be the one and you're still reveling in that trade? For my friend from eighth grade, Christopher Coco, it was the day that he got another classmate to trade him a Roger Clemens rookie card for a Wayne Gretzky rookie card. Chris was a big hockey player. His friend was a big baseball guy. And so that day they traded those cards. If you went online and checked it out today, you would see Wayne Gretzky's card is worth about $2,000, and Roger the Needle Clemens is worth about $42. I was the other kid in that class, so that was not a, a great exchange of mine, but for him, I'm sure that it was. All right, today we're going to be talking great trade, fantastical trade. We're going to be talking about the means by which the Father has seen to it that you would be righteous in his sight. Let me pray for us and then we'll get into this. Father, be gracious to your people gathered here this morning. Would you do the same for your people gathered across this planet, all of yours, all of those who by your grace have come to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus the Christ. Would you fill up our souls with the truth of Scripture and propel us into holy living because of them? Would you give us a thankfulness that we've been invited into your grace, that these words that we hear and celebrate and sing about today will reverberate forever to the glory of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world to the glory of Jesus, the second Adam, who lived perfectly and gives us his righteousness. Would you come and do this work in us today? Through your word and your spirit, I pray. Amen. All right, the last time I preached was December 8th. We finally got to the heart that pumps the blood through the book of Galatians that we're learning through together. It was the doctrine of justification by faith. We're only trying to do the basic basics, and this is what we said. We said that we really need to be justified before God, 
Justified means to receive a verdict of not guilty, righteous, acceptable, approved, welcomed, free. And that the only way that we would ever receive that verdict, that declaration, that standing before God was by placing our faith in another, in the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. That justification does not, will not, cannot come through our good works, our merit, our effort, our record, our resume, but that it only comes with us identifying with Jesus, his works, his effort, his record, his resume. We point to Jesus and we say, I'm with him. And that the Father sees that and declares, if you are with him, in him, then you are justified. You are declared holy, acceptable, clean, pure, welcomed in my sight. I spent some time at the end of that sermon hammering for a while on the implications of this truth. Since our justification hangs on Christ and not on us, what we do or don't do is immaterial or irrelevant to our justification. Now, we're going to do all sorts of good works and good deeds and beautiful things to the glory of God once we get justified down in our bones. There's no such thing as true and justifying faith that does not issue in a changed life and a holy life that is packed with good works and deep personal piety. But for now, in the book of Galatians that we're learning through, in chapters 3 and 4 in particular, the Holy Spirit, by Paul's pen, will not allow you to muddy your works with your faith. He's keeping them separate right now. Good works, bad works, okay works, sort of good works, maybe decent works, any kind of works are not the issue here. Justified is about grace, freely given as a gift to be received by faith. Okay. Now, there are a ton of objections that arise in our minds to the things that I just said to you. We're going to be dealing with them this month and a little bit next month. One of them is this. Thoughtful Christians throughout the ages have called a timeout when reading through the book of Galatians. They've gotten a little bit antsy. They've gotten a little bit concerned. They've gotten a little bit nervous. They kind of scratch their head and they go, hold on a second. Wouldn't justification working like what Pastor Cruz just said, God looking at a sinner and declaring that the sinner is justified as if they were righteous, wouldn't that involve God in a lie, in a hoax, in a cover-up, in a fraud? Wouldn't this be like God looking at Nickelback and saying, your music is awesome? Wouldn't this be like God looking at Burger King and saying, hey, that is some high quality beef you are serving right there. 
Wouldn't this be like God looking at Keanu Reeves and saying, boy, you can act. (laughs) You're laughing, but do you see what I'm getting at? How can God be righteous and declare someone who is not righteous in and of themselves to be righteous? How can God say to a sinner, here's my verdict, you are not guilty when everyone in the courtroom knows that they are guilty, that the person's life doesn't measure up to the verdict. It feels sketchy. It feels shady, unseemly for God to do something like that. This can't be how justified works. Let me give you an illustration to press this home. A couple of weeks ago, I got word that Amazon Prime was live streaming war games. Does anybody know what war games was and is? War games was like the original hacker movie, Matthew Broderick before Ferris Bueller's Day Off. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, Google that thing. So the next time that the boys and I had a cold, rainy night and the girls were watching Alice in Wonderland or something, we went upstairs and we watched war games together. This movie came out during the Cold War. The big idea was that the military had given the power over the nuclear missiles to this big mainframe computer called the Whopper. And this punk teenage computer ninja hacked into the system. And he thought that he was playing a game of thermonuclear, thermo, global thermonuclear war, but the Whopper, the computer, did not know that it was just a game, thought that the Soviet Union was attacking us. To see what happens, you can stream the movie, but early on in the movie, when they're establishing the identity of the different characters, there's the scene where Matthew Broderick and a girlfriend of his are together And earlier that day, they had been told that they were both getting Fs in chemistry class. And so he sits down at his computer, and he breaks into the school's computer system, and he changes his grade from an F to a C. Not too ambitious for himself. But he really likes this girl, and so then he goes in, and he changes her grade from an F to to an A. Just two keystrokes, and it's done. They both go from failing to passing, from condemned to justified. But when you are watching this, something in you goes, that ain't right. They didn't do what was required to earn that passing grade. It is wrong to just arbitrarily alter a mark like that. This is fraudulent justification. It's not fair to the other students. It's not fair to the teacher. It's not fair to the truth of the curriculum. That grade being changed was an unjust action perpetuated by an unjust judge. In like manner, if we say that that's what justification by faith entails, casting a shadow on the integrity of God himself, then I don't want anything to do with it. So this is an objection that needs to be addressed, needs to be answered, if we are going to rest not only in the certainty of our justifiedness, 
but in the justice of it. Now, gladly, there is an answer. It's found in another beautiful doctrine of Scripture that we call the doctrine of imputation. Imputation is the way that God can be both just and the one who justifies the ungodly. All right, the word imputation comes from the Latin word imputare. Ooh, that word means to consider. The idea is that you consider something to belong to someone, or you attribute it to them, or you reckon it to their account, or as we see it in our text today, you count it, count it as belonging to them. Let's work this text of scripture. This is the one verse that we're dealing with today. Paul's been writing and he's been pressing very hard on the fact that we are justified by faith and not by works. Then he transitions into talking about Abraham, how this was exactly true about Abraham. And we're going to preach a whole sermon on what it was about Abraham's story that shows us this. But I just want us to work through the one verse that he introduces this with us because it's hugely important. It has a hugely important verb in here. Verse 6 of Galatians says this, we are justified by faith in Christ just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, do you hear the just as in there? Here's how this happens with us. The same way that it happened with Abraham. He is the example. He is the model. His means of grace is your means of grace. You want to know how this works for you? Then let's take a look at how it worked with Abraham. And how did it happen with Abraham? Okay, the first thing is that Abraham believed God. Believed means by faith, hearing with believing. The gospel that was announced to Abraham was beautiful, clear. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will give you more offspring than there is stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. I will give you a good land. I will do these things for you. Abraham heard and believed. He took it. He said yes to it. He trusted God. He said, are you serious? I'm in. That was it. No works at that moment. It was pure faith. And what happened when Abraham believed? It was counted to him as righteousness. God saw Abraham's believing, his faith, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That word counted, which is in the scripture, is another beautiful Greek word this time, logizomai. It means to set it down as a matter of account, to credit it, to reckon, to go, hey, that counts for you to, here we go, impute it to your account. Now, we use this word, count it, and this concept all the time in our daily life, even as Americans, all the time. So, for example, we use it in sports all the time. If I'm down at the court and I'm playing ball and a little guy switches onto me and I get down into the post and I fake left and I go up right, he tries to foul me as hard as he possibly can because he doesn't want to be embarrassed, but the ball's already in the air. What do I say as the ball is coming through the sky after I've been hacked and falling right through the center 
of the room. Count it, count it really loud. What does that mean when I say count it? It means I'm about to get the points added to my score. Now, I could yell out, impute it, but they would be like, I'm not playing with this theology geek. So instead of going, impute that, I go, count that, count it. Impute it would be a little bit awkward. It's the same idea. Some of you are teachers, educators, and you have to earn your professional development points to advance in your certification, right? If you go and take a summer institute course as a chemistry teacher and you study American poetry and you pass that into the leaders of your school, what are they going to say to you? That doesn't count towards your professional development record. You're a chemistry teacher. You can't study poetry and get credit for it. But if you go to the Harvard Extension School over the summer and you study mole theory or something like that, what happens when you present that transcript? What do they say to you? Count it. That counts. They impute those professional development points to your record. They now belong to you. Maybe the most helpful analogy is with banking, with money. I walk up to the bank teller and I hand them a paycheck and a slip with an account number on it. And what do they do? They count it. They credit it. They reckon it to my account. They make this transaction. They give me a receipt. I go pull up the account on my iPhone. And what do I see? A credit of $500 is mine. Count it. It's in the bank. That's this word, counted or imputed. And we see the same exact phrase in another letter that Paul writes to Roman Christians, and there he uses the banking analogy explicitly. Here's what he says over there. Again, he says to them, making the same point, hey, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then he goes all banking on us and he says, now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Okay, you feel the banking analogy in here? We all get this use of the word counted, right? If you go to work and you get paid, the money is yours. Just got paid, Friday night, party's hopping, feels all right. Why was Johnny Kemp so excited? Why was he so excited? There was money in his account. He worked for it, and it was counted to him. Okay, but then Paul says this, and it's amazing. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Do you feel that? God sees your faith, and there is a credit, a reckoning, a counting to your life, to your record, to your account of righteousness. Theologically, we say it like this, faith is imputed as righteousness. Okay, now the huge question today is, how does that actually happen? 
Does God just poof this righteousness out of midair? Is this like monopoly money that he's throwing around, a big fake deal? Is there any ground for God doing this, saying that it is so, or is this some kind of a legal fiction? Well, the whole reason that Paul presses the banking analogy is because the imputation of righteousness to you happens in the same kind of a way that a bank transfer would happen, a bank transaction. In the same way that money or assets flow from one person's account to another, this is how justification by faith works. Now, rather than use the word transfer or transaction, theologians have used the word exchange. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. I found that adjective to be way too soft, so I named this sermon the fantastical exchange. Whatever adjective you want to throw in there, the stupendous exchange, the stunning exchange, the amazing exchange, the mind-blowing exchange. Julia would call this the wicked, ginormously wild exchange. She's a little Bostonian girl. Whatever you want to call it, there's this exchange. And that transfer is this, that in the gospel, all of our sin, our condemnation, to use the accounting language, our debt, got imputed to counted to Christ on the cross and all of his righteousness and his merit, his justifiableness gets imputed to, counted to you when you believe. Double imputation is the technical term, two sides to this one beautiful exchange. Okay, now some of this is Christianity 101, but we should never get tired of thinking clearly and deeply and reminding our souls and discipling our sons and daughters to take hold of these things. So let's do this together. The first side is this one right here. Our sin imputed to Christ on the cross. We've got a problem. We are sinners. That's a big deal. A ton of debt owed is one way to think of it. Judgment day looming. The wrath of God must fall on all sin. It must. And we have barns full of sin, buckets full of sin. If sin was cash, we would be Bill Gates and Mikhail Prokhorov and Mark Cuban and Miley Cyrus all wrapped into one checking account. Red, red, red. Pulling up your account of your life is like redder than my face on a seven-degree day after I drank a glass of wine and lifted for like an hour. I have rosacea, and this thing gets terribly red. Your life would be much redder than that. That is your account, and you have no means of getting out of the debt that you are in. This has always been the problem for sinners. And so in the older covenant, the shadows, the symbols, God gave his people two means of getting rid of, removing, clearing out their sins as they lived before him. We see both of these most clearly on the Day of Atonement. Two things happened on that day. One, there was an animal sacrificed. A lamb was brought in and was killed in the place of the people. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And so the lamb would die as a substitute in the place of the people. 
But there was this second thing going on that day, this other ritual that involved another animal. It was called the sending of the scapegoat. Hear these words from Leviticus. They'll be helpful to you today. Leviticus 16 says, And Aaron the priest shall lay both of his hands on the head of a live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transactions and all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and then send it away into the wilderness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself. Okay, you feel that? What is that right there? The laying of hands, it is a transfer. It is an exchange. It is Aaron imputing the sins of the people for the year onto another, the scapegoat. And at the end of the ceremonies on the Day of Atonement, the account of the people was cleared. Their sin was imputed to another. All right, now what's the problem here? Two minutes later, two days later, two weeks later, sin was back on their account again. And next year was coming again. Got to find another goat. Got to do the ceremony again. Then the next year and the next year and the next year. There was this frustration. There was this longing for some more permanent solution. This animal is nice, but is there any way to get this transfer done once and for all? And so by the Spirit, Isaiah began to prophesy about a man, a suffering servant who was to come, and he would be like the ultimate and the final scapegoat. And Isaiah said things like this, Isaiah 53, the Lord will lay the iniquity of us all on him. He will bear the sins of many. Then Jesus arrives to be baptized by John the Baptist in the wilderness, and John sees him for the first time, and what does John say? Echoing Isaiah, he says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away, who removes sins of the world. Then Jesus lives and dies and rises, and after his resurrection and his ascension, Holy Spirit-inspired writers keep going back to this theme. Peter says it like this, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The writer to the Hebrews says it like this, Christ, having been offered once, bore the sins of many. Okay, we could go through 15 other verses. The idea is what? That on the cross, our sins were imputed to, were counted to Jesus. This is what we call the passive obedience of Christ for us. On the cross, Jesus volunteering to die, to pay the price, to take on himself all the guilt and the debt and the perversions of all of the elect, all of them. And Jesus says, charge it all to my account. I take on myself the sins of my people, impute them here. All right, for us, 
This is what this would feel like, just a tiny little illustration. Has anybody here ever been in very serious student loan debt? Some of you are like, yes. Don't use the past tense, though, Cruz. That's like tonight. It's depressing, right? You get the letter in the mail every month or whatever it is. You owe $145,000. You just feel like I'm never, there's no way I'm getting out of that debt. The passive obedience of Christ with you, the truth that Jesus took to himself, all of your sins, this is like you getting your next student loan bill in the mail, the very next one, and down where it says, remaining balance, seeing a big, fat, beautiful zero, done, all your debt, wiped out, canceled. This is why Christians so love the cross of Christ. This is why. This is why we love the passive obedience of Jesus for us. This is why we love singing about the death, the blood of Christ. Jesus paid it all. In this side of the great exchange, our sin is removed. Our debts are cleared. We are brought to zero. Now, as awesome as that side of the transaction is, there's more to say here because there needs to be more. Mere forgiveness, just a clean slate, is not enough. We need to not only be neutral, we need to be acceptable. We need to be approvable. We need to be justifiable. Another illustration, have you ever been on a team with rules like baseball where the game doesn't count until a certain number of innings have passed. So let's say you're in a softball game or a baseball game and your team is just getting pounded. It's like 97 to 3, but it's only the third inning. You look up and even if you're an atheist, what do you start doing? You start praying for rain. Open skies, open. I want sheets of water to start pouring on this field. Puddles, let me see them. Why is that your hope and prayer? Because if the game doesn't extend to four and a half innings or five and a half innings or whatever it is, it doesn't count against you. It's canceled. Now that would be cool except for what? Except for the makeup game that's coming in which you know that you have no chance ever of beating this team. You feel that? We have the same exact problem if all that God offers us in the gospel is forgiveness and then puts the meriting of righteousness back on us. We are never going to get there. And so, in imputation, by God's grace, not only are our sins transferred to Christ, but his righteousness is transferred to us. Here's how we say this. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us as a gift. In other words, here's what scripture is saying here to you. Jesus not only died for us, he lived for us. His dying was essential and crucial, but so was his living. Did you ever think about why Jesus couldn't just show up, 
die, rise, and save us. He could have got here on a Thursday night, been crucified on a Friday, buried for the Saturday, risen on the Sunday, redemption accomplished in 3.2 days. That's not how it worked because it could not work that way. We needed not only the passive obedience of Jesus for us to forgive our sins, but we needed the active obedience of Jesus for us to earn our righteousness. And this is just so beautiful. Jesus was born of a woman. He was born under the law. He was subjected to the law of God from birth, just like you and me. The same requirements of holy living, just like you and me. The same temptations that you and I endure, Jesus was subject to them all. But the life that he was given, he fulfilled the law at every point. He obeyed the Father perfectly. He loved the Father with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. He merited the blessing of God by his perfect, active righteousness. We say it like this, Jesus lived the perfect life. And at the cross, the Father was not only accepting the voluntary sacrifice of that life, but in the resurrection, we say that he was vindicating that life. In other words, by the Spirit, the Father raises the Son from the dead, and when he does that, he's announcing to the universe that Jesus, unlike Adam, unlike Eve, unlike you, unlike me, that Jesus was righteous, holy, justifiable. Death could not hold him because there was no guilt there, there was no sin there, there was no debt there, just justifiable perfection. And then here is what God says to you in the gospel. That righteousness, that justifiable perfection is now given to you. I will count Jesus' righteousness for anyone who believes in him. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, you believe the gospel, you trust, you look to Jesus and Jesus alone as your salvation, and the Father promises by the Spirit, he will deposit into your account all the riches of Christ. The old timers called these the benefits of Christ, and they're yours. I go back to our student loan example one more time. So you thought the day that you got the letter from the student loan company was the greatest day in your life, right? You are tweeting that thing. Facebook, you've posted like 19 pictures of the zero at the bottom of the document. You called all your friends. You're just really happy. You're going wild. I can't possibly have a better day than yesterday. Next day, mailman comes trudging up the steps, drops some letters in your mailbox. A checking account statement has come in from your bank this time. TD Bank, People's United, Sovereign, whatever it may be. And you open that up, 
and you're expecting to see the, the balance that you're used to looking at, $46.17 down at the bottom after everything is accounted for, instead of saying $46.17, instead of having any numbers at all, it's just got the word full down in the balance, full. And so you call the bank and you say, hey, I got this statement in the mail, and it doesn't say $46, but it says full. Can you tell me what's going on with that? And the guy on the phone says to you, full means to the maximum full. It means you can't spend that much money full. It means you will never run out full. Midnight runs to Taco Bell, fresh white kicks when you need them, vacations, whatever it may be. You, you cannot spend through the riches that exist in your account. You feel that? That is what we have received because of Jesus' active obedience for us. We have been credited with a limitless, perfect righteousness before the Father. His unending delight in the Son is the same emotion that he feels when he looks at you because you are in Christ and his riches are yours. Say it like this, we are rich in justifiability before the Father. Jesus' record has been imputed to your account. And I mean really, actually, technically, literally counted, imputed to you. Imputation is not some theoretical, theological, cute, wishful thinking fantasy game. Imputation is real. This is real. Okay, this statement right here is where the medieval Roman Catholic Church and today's Roman Catholic Church and many others kind of get tripped up. This sentence right here. They rejected justification by faith in the 15 and 1600s because they called it what I called it before. They called it a legal fiction. It was not good enough for them to have the Father announce or look upon the sinner as if they were righteous. The sinner had to actually be righteous. They said that if justification was God declaring something to be true, that it really wasn't true, I don't want anything to do with it. And so this is why so many religious systems begin with grace, but then add works to it. They trot out systems of merit. All of them are trying to do what? All systems of merit are trying to do what? They're trying to get the sinful person to this place where they are not sinful anymore. If God renders a verdict of justified to someone who is not sinful anymore, then he is in the right. And God remains just because he is justifying the godly. Now, what's our response to that charge, that objection? If imputation was like monopoly and it was fictional and fake, then you are correct. It would be a lie and a fraud and a ruse, and we wouldn't want to have anything to do with it. 
But the whole point of the gospel, the whole point of everything that I have said to you this morning is that imputation is real. It's real. That you can be simultaneously sinful and justified before God because Jesus really bled and died and Jesus really bore your sins in his body on a tree and Jesus really came and really lived perfectly and he really transfers that righteousness to us for real. This is why the banking analogy, the accounting language, I'm an MBA, I've never preached on accounting before ever, this is so exciting to me. This is why God used accounting language in the book of Romans. It's so helpful and it should be precious to you, even if you cannot balance your checkbook. Say it like this, and I'll finish it here. Nick's in the front row, so I'm going to pick on Nick. If I earned $100 million hustling, working hard, getting after it, $100 million, and then I got in touch with my banker, and I instructed him to transfer the $100 million that I had earned into Nick's account. First, he would say, are you out of your mind? What are you doing? I said, no, no, no. I want to transfer all that I have earned and worked for into Nick's account. He says, you sure? I'm so sure. You sure? You're sure. I'm sure. All 100 million? I'm sure. Do it. All right. He makes the exchange. The transaction happens. The transfer is complete. Would the money really be in Nick's account? All right, somebody's going to nod at some point, right, and go, yes. Did Nick earn it? Did Nick hustle for it? Did Nick deserve it? Did Nick work for it? No, no. So is Nick going to call the bank up and say, hey, listen, about the money in my account, I didn't earn it. I didn't work for it. It was given to me as a gift. It was just imputed to me. So I don't think it's really mine. I don't think it, it, it could possibly really be there. What's the banker going to say on the other end of the line? Hold on a second, Mr. Sutera. Check something here. Uh, sorry, but it's in there. I'm looking at the $100 million. Your account, your name, this is your money for real. It's yours. It's yours. This is the good news of the gospel. Not that we must become perfectly justifiable. No. But that God sees us as if we were perfectly justifiable because he sees us in Christ and all of Christ's benefits are ours. The good news of the gospel is not that God justifies the godly. That's not what the text of Scripture says today. The good news of the gospel is that God justifies the ungodly. God has, past tense, moved your sin to Jesus' account. You are forgiven. 
and that God has, past tense, moved Jesus' righteousness to your account. You are justified. Jesus both got you out of debt and Jesus made you rich. Receive what Scripture calls the gift of righteousness. Revel in the reality of that fantastical exchange. Let me press my applications and we'll sing together. The first one is this. Do you revel in the passive obedience of Jesus for you? As familiar as we may be with the cross of Christ, I don't know if we quite understand what a price this was to pay. I mean, even you horrible sinners feel the the guilt and the shame and the pain when you sin, right? So if you look at pornography or if you mouth off to your parents, if you steal something that didn't belong to you, just that one sin in one person's life, it hurts, right? And in the passive obedience of Christ, he was taking all the sins of all of his children on himself, all of them. And he wasn't doing this as a sinner who was, you know, callous to sin. He was doing this as the infinitely divine son of God who had lived a perfect life of obedience. The, the, the passive bearing of our sins on himself is something that we should revel in in a somber and serious and amazed way. Again, this is why the saints love Good Friday. This is why we see Christ crucified and we say, just my sin from this week is heavy on me. He really initiated an exchange in which he would take on himself all the sins of all the world. That is heavy and that's good news that all of your sin was taken by Jesus. Respond rightly to that. And then lastly, do you revel in the active obedience of Jesus for you? We do sing about the cross. We we revel in the cross. We think about the cross. We should. You can't possibly do that enough. We may not revel enough in the life of Jesus. We should revel in his life, in his death, but also in his life. I don't know if we celebrate this side of imputation the way that we should. When you read through the Gospels, do you get jacked up and excited and start talking to the walls in your room when you see Jesus obeying the Father perfectly? When you see the story of Jesus when he was 12 and a half years old, honoring his mother and father, responding to their authority in his life. And then you think about what your heart was like when you were 12 and a half years old. Do you just get so excited to see my righteousness being played out in the life of Christ? When you see Jesus with the woman at the well, Every dude in this room knows when you meet a woman at the well like this woman, there is some kind of lust happening in your heart, right? Some kind of hunt that you are on. A single woman, she's where she shouldn't be. She may be available to me. You go read John 4 and you see Jesus engaging with this woman at the well and you see nothing but purity and selflessness 
and love in his interaction for her? Do you just get excited and say, there is my champion, there is my savior, there is my righteousness? When you see Christ over and over and over again under every temptation, in every situation, obedient, humble, courageous, bold, selfless, do you get excited because you are seeing your righteousness before the Father being earned for you? We need to revel not only in the death of Christ, but in the life of Christ, not only that we are forgiven, but that we are justifiable, that each of these things have been imputed rightly, our sin to Jesus, his righteousness to us. When you finally see this, Scripture calls it being born again, becoming a new creation, seeing that the old accounts and the old statements and the old debt is gone, and I have stepped into something new. From there, we are propelled into a life of joy and holiness because our sins are gone, Jesus' riches are ours, we are accepted before the Father, and now we can finally live the way he intended for us to. Let's revel in these things together. Father, this is heavy. We say thank you that in some sense this is deeper than the deepest brightest of minds could ever get wrapped around. The the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. We confess this. We just, this is so deep. And yet we also celebrate that this is so simple that a seven-year-old kid can get it. They can get it. I'm a sinner, but Jesus took my sin and he gave me his goodness. And now I stand before the Father, fully accepted and loved forever. I pray that that would be the heart that pumps the blood through Seven Mile Road, that in all things we would celebrate the death and the life of Christ for us. Thanks for this good news that you justify the ungodly. That's us. Receive it in faith today. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to me unpack that for